Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. In the year 2072, as our world reels from climate chaos, there is one beacon of hope. Pura. A sanctuary amidst the devastation, safeguarding its inhabitants from the relentless onslaught of environmental disasters. Meet Demetria Lopez, the face of Pura's pristine image. But beneath the facade lies a chilling truth. When Demetria uncovers a secret that could shatter everything Pura stands for, she faces a choice. Loyalty or truth? Preservation or revelation? From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death comes an electrifying new series, The Last City. Starring the talents of Rhea Seahorn, Jenny Tirado, and Maury Sterling, prepare for a gripping tale of intrigue and moral reckoning. Subscribe to The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you listen to podcasts. And for an exclusive experience, join Wondery Plus to binge all episodes early and ad-free. The future of Pura awaits. Captain, there's something. There. Right there. I see it. What is a scanner picking up? We've got metal, plastics, definitely synthetic materials. It's a spaceship, Captain. A spaceship? What are you doing there? Captain Taktun Kantari placed his hand on my shoulder and squinted at my screen, then turned his head to the window. In front of us, the comet we call Mother's Light spun slowly in the deep black of space. Mother's Light holds a special place in our history. It once burned across the night sky of our homeworld, Dramaria, several hundred cycles ago. Brighter than any before it, the comet had been taken as a divine sign, prompting several warring empires to declare peace, later unifying into the planet's first world government. This was the catalyst for a renaissance that had advanced Dramari science and technology in leaps and bounds. Until finally, 20 cycles ago, we had launched our first chemical rocket into orbit, which is where we found the Federation waiting for us, with open arms. The Federation accelerated our technology even more. The vessel we were in represented the pinnacle of Dramari engineering. It was our first faster-than-light ship, built based on technology bartered from the Federation soon after first contact. Its name was 01-001. Model 1. Vessel 1. We called it WANS. This was only the WANS' second mission, a short in-system hop to visit Mother's Light, a test flight, a training mission, and a pilgrimage for our people. Telescopic observations prior to first contact had confirmed that Mother's Light had not been an ice-laden comet at all, but rather a massive rocky asteroid that had passed close enough to graze the atmosphere of our planet, causing the light show that had lit the fire of modern civilization. Here on the bridge of the Ones, the crew and I were dumbstruck. Nothing could have prepared us to find an alien craft anchored to the side of the Great Comet. I'm not getting any heat off the object, Captain. 
No obvious signs of life. Align trajectories and take us as close as you can. I'm going in. Yes, sir. I heard Captain Taktun Kantari slide the bubble helmet over his head and lock it into place over the comlink. I checked the indicators on my system in the command module. I initiated the suit's surveillance system and could easily see the captain as he ran his pre-space walk protocol. He triple-checked the joint seals on each of his suit's four legs and three arms. Several seconds later, when the pressure indicator on his HUD had turned green, I watched him push off the wall and float slowly through the inner airlock door, which closed behind him. I'm ready, Rocky. Open the outer door. If he was nervous, we couldn't tell. I'd been the captain's first mate for two tours. I knew him well enough to know he was perpetually calm. But it wasn't every day you found an alien ghost ship floating derelict on the outskirts of the system. Sure thing, Captain. Let's take it slow, Tuck. Affirmative. Hidden pumps quickly removed the airlock's atmosphere, replicating the vacuum on the other side of the outer door but there was still the faintest of popping sounds as it opened. Another push from his hind legs propelled him on a stately glide out of the airlock and away from the ship. At his bidding, short bursts of gas fired from the suit's maneuvering jets, turning him so that he could see our ship as he drew further away from it. Another command to the maneuvering jets rotated Tuck to face back towards his target, He regarded the abandoned ship carefully as he approached. It more closely resembled the somewhat primitive designs of our own people than the advanced ones of the older species, perhaps something in between. Its lack of sophistication indicated that whichever species had built it, this ship was old. It might even predate the asteroid's flyby. However, the thing that stood out most was the damage the mystery ship had incurred. A large section of hull had been torn open, seemingly by an explosion from within, judging by the way the hull plates had bent outwards. This left a gaping wound in the ship's side, which the captain chose as his entry point. Captain? Go ahead. It seems most likely that the bridge is in the forward section, furthest away from you. Copy that. I see a forward-viewing window, which could indicate a bridge. I'll enter the hull via the damage section and make my way forward. Tuck reduced his momentum as he approached, puffs of gas countering his inertia. He passed the torn metal walls of the ship and floated into the dark interior. Three beams of light shot out of torches secured to one of his arms. Do we have clean visuals, Rocky? The feed from his helmet's camera was clear and strong, but I checked with the comms officer, who nodded silently. The feed is clear, Captain. No interference. Copy. Keep an eye on it. The captain pointed his lights at a bare patch of decking before he touched down on it, the magnets in his suit's feet preventing him from bouncing off. He played the other two lights back and forth over the ship's interior, seeking clues to what had happened. Twisted metal and smashed electrical components could be seen everywhere. 
There was an internal doorway leading forward, where it looked as if the obstructions had been cut away to regain access to whatever lay beyond. I'm in. It's a real mess in here. Proceeding towards the bridge. Roger. All your suit indicators are green. Mission is a go. The doorway was wide enough for him to pass through easily. Whichever species had built this ship seemed to be a comparable size to us. A short passageway lay beyond, lined with unknown compartments and hatches, all closed and secured. They were labeled in a script I didn't recognize. At the end of the passageway was another doorway left open. Two oddly shaped objects that I assumed were command chairs installed on gimbals faced the screens and the window beyond. The strange design of the chairs suited to bipeds rather than quadrupeds like us reinforced the otherworldly origins of the vessel. The captain pushed off the door frame and floated to one of the two chairs to inspect them. On the side of the chair, he found a control cluster and something that looked like a data port. From a pocket on his suit, he withdrew the OmniConnect with careful reverence. It was a Federation-made gadget that could interface with any currently known data technology produced by any known species. The tip of the OmniConnect seemed to melt as Tuck placed it gently against the data port, becoming a viscous silver fluid that flowed into it, establishing connections with the components inside. The OmniConnect provided enough power to bring the vessel's long-dead control system partially to life. It linked back to my system, a stream of information populating on my screens. Tuck examined the rest of the bridge for a few minutes while he waited for me to update him on the result. I saw the data flow onto my screen as the OmniConnect worked its way through the ancient systems, decompiling and translating swaths of information. Sir, data's coming through now. The code is archaic, but it seems to be Terran. It's hundreds of cycles old, at least. I found a number of unsent video messages sitting in the comm system. Some of them are corrupted, but there are a few that look intact. We're converting them to Dramari. It'll take some time to do them all, but the first one's ready now. Sending it to your HUD. Terran? Are you sure? I wonder how they got this far out of their own neighborhood. 100% sure, sir. I'm in the ship's registry files now. It was built in the Luna shipyards over 200 cycles ago. Registered name, Starchild. No idea how it ended up here. An icon flashed on my display, indicating that Tuck's HUD had received the video file. He selected it and began playback, watching it on his suit's display, while we watched it simultaneously in the command module. A human female sat in a command chair facing the camera, the ship's bridge in the background. Her hair was pulled back from her forehead, secured with a clasp. She wore gray overalls adorned with patches, depicting Earth and its moon, Luna. I'd recognized both celestial bodies from the Xeno Society lessons from the Academy. The lines in the skin around the female's eyes and mouth indicated that she was a breeding-age adult, well out of adolescence. Hovering behind her shoulder was a similarly aged human male, substantially larger, also wearing gray overalls. 
Message begin. Hello, my little star child. It's mom and dad. How have you been? Keeping your room clean like you promised, I hope. Sweetie, I've got some bad news. I know we promised we'd be home in time for your birthday, but something's come up. We got offered another contract hauling medical supplies out to Sirius B, and it pays too well to pass up. You know how things are tight right now. Well, after this job, we won't have to worry about money for a while. We might even have enough to take you to that theme park planet you've been begging to go to. What's its name? Dis World. Dis World. Dystopia? Uh, I don't remember. But, but you know the one. You'd like that, wouldn't you? The man leaned over and shoved a small box in front of the camera. It was wrapped in a porous-looking sheet material. I could see where the edges of the sheet were folded and secured to the sides. A flat ribbon of a different, glossier material was also wrapped around it and tied with a bow on top. And we got you an extra special present. Mark, that was meant to be a surprise. What? I didn't tell her what it is. Act surprised when you get it, Emma. Anyway, we're very sorry, sweetie. You know we both want to be there with you, but sometimes being an adult means doing things you don't want to do. We'll make it up to you when we get back, I promise. Behave well for your grandma. You know she'll tell me if she catches you sneaking cookies from the kitchen. We're in hyperspace right now, so you won't get this message until we pop out at Sirius B. We love you. Bye. And clean your room. End of message. That doesn't explain much. Whatever happened here was... catastrophic. Captain, another video's ready. Okay, play it, Rocky. Message begin. The woman was wearing a spacesuit with the name Linda stenciled onto it, helmet on and fully sealed. The bridge behind her was now in a state of pandemonium, bathed in the red flashing lights of emergency alarms. Unsecured objects careened around, bumping into the walls and each other. Through the helmet's visor, her face appeared tired and dirty, smeared by dirt or soot. Mayday, Mayday, this is TRMV Starchild requesting emergency assistance from any Federation ships nearby. Our warp core became unstable and exploded while in hyperspace transit. We've been dumped out into an uh, unknown system. The explosion has destroyed the court completely and caused severe damage to our FTL and radio comms hardware. There's also been major damage to our life support system, as well as significant loss to our atmosphere. We're breached pretty bad. My husband Mark is working to repair internal hatches damaged by the explosion so we can restore atmosphere to the rear half of the ship. But there's no way for us to patch the hole and repressurize the bridge. We're restricted to sublight fusion engines only. There seems to be a planet nearby that sensors indicate might be habitable. We might have a shot at reaching it before our life support gives out, but it will be months before we can get there. I'm hoping this message will get out as soon as we can get the comms back online. Please send help quickly. End of message. This human, Linda, was talking about our planet. Dramaria is the only remotely habitable planet in the system, so they must have been heading there. They never made it. On my screen, I saw the captain take in the destruction around him with fresh eyes. That was the remains of a flux condenser coil. 
and there was the shattered disk of a tachyon lens. He crouched over the remains of a data rack, and we could see the haphazard repairs that had been attempted to the comms system. Components bridged with soldered wires and cables to try and bypass the damage. But it had all been futile. The circuit boards were nothing but scrap. That was why the messages in the comms buffer were left unsent. Tuck crossed to the other side of the damaged room, revealing further signs of repair. The hatch leading to the rear of the ship had been buckled by the explosion and a patchwork of metal plates had been welded on to seal the gaps, leaving the hatch assumedly airtight, but inoperable. Tuck would need to find an alternative entrance into the rear of the ship. The captain backtracked and emerged back into open space. Tuck's helmet camera focused on how the ship was attached to the asteroid. From what I could tell, the ship had originally been fitted with landing struts installed at the base near the thruster nacelles. This would have allowed the Star Child to land vertically on a planetary surface, lowering itself down under the power of its fusion engines. These landing struts had been cut away, as evidenced by the telltale marks of a plasma cutter on the metal stumps that remained. The struts had then been shifted to the nose of the craft and affixed to the load points on its chassis, with the feet of the struts pressing against the asteroid. Additional beams and thinner metal sections had been welded on to reinforce the structure, but almost all were bent or twisted in some way, and the whole structure looked like it had been compressed from its original form. The rock around the landing feet on the asteroid was also covered with a web of cracks, suggesting that it had also been subject to extreme forces. A third video had finished processing on the system's mainframe. I pinged Tuck. Message again. We've managed to seal the back half of the ship and restore pressure. Luckily, the hydroponics unit was never exposed to vacuum, so the plants are still alive. For now, at least. Life support is still a problem, though. The system isn't compensating properly for the damage. Carbon monoxide is rising slowly, and the scrubbers aren't coping. We're okay for now, but it's doubtful that the system will be able to support us for the months it will take us to get to the planet. Two people is too much for it to handle in its current state. Mark is running the numbers and seeing if he can come up with a solution, but in the meantime, we're sleeping with the plants. I don't know whether it's all in my head, but the air in there feels fresher. Our problems don't stop there, though. This region of space seems to have a higher than average density of micrometeoroids. It's not bad enough to cause any immediate alarm, but with the state of the hull and our dodgy life support system what it is, it's... It's worrying. We can't afford to take a hit. There's... There's no redundancy left. Luckily, we found some shelter from a large asteroid that we're hiding behind. It looks like it came from OutSystem, probably from the Oort cloud surrounding the star, and it's heading inwards on a trajectory that will take it close to our destination. It should shield the ship from anything in front of us as long as we stay close. We tried to fix the comm system, but it's... 
it's trash, so these messages won't be broadcast unless we get some help. But at least there'll be a record of what happened to us if help never comes. Who knows? If this planet turns out to be habitable and we're the first to discover it, then maybe these messages will be part of a museum tour once it's colonized. We'll be famous. Anyway, that's all for now. Whoever's watching this, tell Emma we love her. Bye. End of message. That explains how they met up with Mother's Light. A creeping sense of dread was stirring in the back of my mind. The asteroid had made it to the vicinity of Tramaria. But it seemed Linda and Mark hadn't. I feared what grisly scene Tuck might find deeper within the ship. The captain turned his attention back to the airlock and examined it carefully. Standard practice among Federation members was to have a manual override outside of any airlock. This allowed re-entry in instances where a ship had lost power and an EVA was required to make repairs. Tuck quickly found the override lever and pushed. I watched him adjust his position, bracing two of his feet against the ladder rungs as he used his entire body to apply as much force as possible. The lever flexed alarmingly, and I thought the brittle metal was about to snap when suddenly it turned and the airlock door sprang open. Only the magnets attached to Tuck's feet stopped him from being thrown into space as the door swung outwards. Careful there, Captain. Wouldn't want you spinning off into oblivion and leaving me in charge. (laughs) We can't have that. He clambered inside the airlock and pulled the door closed behind him. Another lever. This one seemed easier to move. I watched the captain open the inner door as he moved to the inside of the ship. There was no atmosphere left, just as we'd suspected. It would have slowly leaked away over many years, no matter how well the hull was sealed. After what happened to this particular ship, well-sealed was not a description that could ever be applied to it again. On the other side of the airlock was a small staging room, a space for crew to put on or remove their suits and collect equipment and cargo for transfer outside. There were two lockers on the wall. The first was labeled with the word I now recognize as Linda. He opened it and found the spacesuit we had seen her wearing in the videos, as well as some handheld tools and EVA safety tethers. Everything looked very well worn. The second locker bore a different Terran script, which I assumed to be Mark. This locker contained tools and safety tethers, but no spacesuit. What did that mean? The fourth message landed on my screen, and I forwarded it to the captain's HUD. Another one, Captain. Go ahead. Message again. This time, it was Mark instead of Linda. He was in his spacesuit, only his head and shoulders visible to the camera. His bushy beard had been tamed by several elastic bands so that it wouldn't float around inside his helmet and obscure his vision. Behind him, a starfield rotated slowly. There was no sign of the ship. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the year 2072, as our world reels from climate chaos, there is one beacon of hope. Pura. A sanctuary amidst the devastation, safeguarding its inhabitants from the relentless onslaught of environmental disasters. Meet Demetria Lopez, the face of Pura's pristine image. But beneath the facade lies a chilling truth. When Demetria uncovers a secret that could shatter everything Pura stands for, she faces a choice. Loyalty or truth? Preservation or revelation? From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death comes an electrifying new series, The Last City. Starring the talents of Rhea Seahorn, Jenny Tirado, and Maury Sterling, prepare for a gripping tale of intrigue and moral reckoning. Subscribe to The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you listen to podcasts. And for an exclusive experience, join Wondery Plus to binge all episodes early and ad-free. The future of Pura awaits. Hello, star child. It's daddy here. I hope you enjoyed your birthday, honey. I bet Grandma baked you a big cake. I'm sorry again, sweetie. Damn. I never wanted to make such a habit of saying that to you. Daddy has to go away. And, um... As much as I hate to say it, I, uh... I'm not coming back. Mom and Dad have a problem. Well, yeah, we have lots of problems. But, um, this one is the most important. You see, our ship can't keep both of us safe. The life support system isn't strong enough, and I've tried everything I can think of, and I can't find a way. I can't fix it. I I can't fix it. So, there's only one way. I want you to know that you and your mom are the most important things in the universe to me, and... I am so glad that you're safe. But now I need to make sure that mommy's safe too. She's sleeping right now. And she doesn't know I'm going away yet. But when you see her next time, she's going to be very sad. So I need you to be extra strong for her. And give her a big hug from me. Okay, baby. Okay. And I can't believe I missed your birthday. And you're going to have to grow up without me. 
been so happy to be your father. Happy birthday, Emma. I love you, star child. I love you. Goodbye. End of message. I stared at the empty locker through the feet of Tuck's helmet. There was no suit, because Mark had spaced himself, making the ultimate sacrifice so that his wife could live. I marveled at the depth and power of human love. I think the captain did, too. Rocky, is that buddy drifting out there somewhere? Calculate a probability cone starting where the asteroid would have been approximately 300 years ago and designated as a priority search zone. It'll be a huge area, so we may have to call in some Federation assistance. I understood the gravity of the order as I crafted the message. Normally, one body would be a trivial worry looked over by Central. But this was a different circumstance. Roger. Informing Central Command now. Shutting the locker and leaving the staging room behind, Tuck moved into the next section of the ship. A jumbled mass of storage crates was piled against the rearward wall. They all bore the spiral helix insignia symbolizing medicine within the Federation. It looked as if they had been floating loose while the ship had undergone acceleration, instead of being stowed in secure storage racks. Inspecting the deck with his lights, Tuck pointed out the bolt holes where such racks would have been installed. Suddenly, I connected the dots. The additional reinforcement of the structure on the craft's nose must be disassembled from storage racking. I had also noticed that all non-critical support beams of the ship's superstructure in this section had been cut out, presumably also to reinforce the structure. Message again. Linda was in the hydroponics lab. The membranes around her eyes were red and puffy. Life support has stabilized under the reduced load. Uh, good news, better news, and bad news. Well, new bad news. The good news is that the planet is inhabited. On the scopes, I can see clear signs of pre-industrial civilization, agriculture fields, some large-scale structures. Even looks like there's at least one significant conflict going on based on some of the burn-off that I'm seeing. The better news is that the planet is being observed by a Federation pre-contact probe in high orbit. My radio is shot so I can't signal it and it's unlikely to see me since it's focused on the planet, but if I can rendezvous with it, then I can hardwire in and get out a call for help. Now the bad news. I've been refining the trajectory of this asteroid I've hitched a ride with. It definitely came from OutSystem, but here's the kicker. It's going to collide with the planet. I'm talking a dead-on, bye-bye dinosaur type of collision that will wipe out all life down there. Including that new bunch of aliens who are about to have a really bad year. So, this leaves me with two choices, really. 
Option number one, I pop out from behind this asteroid, burn like hell, and try to rendezvous with the probe before the asteroid hits. There should be enough time for a ship to come rescue me if they don't dilly-dally, but the planet would be toast. Then there's option number two. The asteroid and I are still a long way away from the planet. All it would take is a little nudge to push it off course slightly, causing it to miss the planet. Unfortunately, because of how damn big this thing is, that little nudge would take literally all the fuel I have left, leaving nothing for me to decelerate and rendezvous with the probe. Even then, I'm not completely sure it will work. Option two also has the itty bitty drawback of condemning me to a slow, cold death in space. That's if I can even find a way to push the asteroid with a star child without the ship breaking apart under the stress. Uh, the longer it takes for me to find a solution to that, the less likely the burn is to be successful. There's, there's just so many variables. I would be cutting it really close. What do I do? Do I try to get home to see my daughter again, condemning millions of innocent sapiens, not to mention all the other life forms on that planet to a fiery death, and then live with that weight every day for the rest of my life? Or, or do I try to save them with a long shot that A, might not work, and B, will definitely kill me, leaving my own daughter an orphan? Talk about hard choices. <laughs> I wish Mark was here. He always had a way of putting things in perspective. I guess I've got some thinking to do. End of message. Mother's light never hit Dramaria. A human must have made the harder choice. She had sacrificed her own life. All for an alien people that she'd never met, never even seen. We owe her everything. After a moment of silence, Tuck passed through the hollowed-out cargo section and into the hydroponics unit. The plants were long dead. Their brittle leaves fragmented into clouds of dust as he brushed past them to reach the far end of the room. Then we saw her. Her body was in a sleeping bag, strapped to the wall, as spacers often did when in zero-g. Time and vacuum had mummified her, leaving the skin pulled tight over her skull as the tissues underneath had dried and shrunk. Her brown hair was unrestrained. It extended out from her head like a halo, completely still due to the lack of airflow. To her breast, she clutched a box, held fast over centuries by stick-like arms that crossed over her chest. I recognized it from the first video. Emma's gift. The final message finished processing. He played it, and we watched together as he floated just paces away from Linda's body. Message again. This time, Linda was back in her spacesuit, the helmet beside her on the floor. She was sitting in the hydroponics unit, artificial gravity keeping her in place. This meant that the ship was under thrust, 
a guess confirmed by the noise of the engines that could be heard in the background. She must have started the burn. The star child slowly pushing the asteroid away from Dramaria and its people. It's working. The fusion engines are running. They won't stop until they run out of fuel or there's a malfunction. Either way, I won't be around to see it. I've decided to pilfer some parts from the life support system to build a cooler for the fuel injection assembly. That should keep the engines going a little bit longer. Disabling life support doesn't really matter anymore. I'm dead anyway. I'd rather have a quick death than a slow one. The sad thing is, is I'll never know if any of this worked, but I needed to maximize the chances. I need to make sure this wasn't all for nothing. This next part is for Emma. Honey, I'm sorry that I'm not coming home to you. You're not gonna understand this until you're older, but sometimes in life you have to make tough choices. Too often doing the right thing means doing the hard thing. I know you'll be mad at your dad and I for the choices we made. Mad at us for leaving you. I hope that one day after you've grown up and had a life of your own, you'll understand the reasons for my choices and that you'll be brave enough to make your own hard choices when you have to. I also hope you'll never need to. Please don't hate me. You will always be my daughter and I will always be with you. I love you. Goodbye. End of message. Our shuttle landed softly on the pad. As the turbines spun down, their whining gradually abating, Tuck and I picked up our satchels and clambered out of the ship. We were met by a strange sight. Emerald green grass, similar to the purple analog found on Dramaria, covered low rolling hills stretching into the distance. We turned to see a human wearing a diplomatic uniform, standing beside the now-powered-down shuttle. Greetings, Captain. Lieutenant, my name is John Carlson, senior Xeno attaché for the Terran Republic. Welcome to Earth! Tuck approached and extended a hand in greeting, as we'd been taught by our diplomatic training. John shook it firmly before reaching to shake mine. The human skin was warm and dry, like nothing I'd ever felt before. I hope the translator is working adequately. Thank you for accommodating our request to visit. No, thank you. We owe you a great debt for discovering the fate of our missing citizens, no matter how much time has passed. Apologies for the inconvenience. I know Earth's gravity is hard on your people, but she's too frail to make the trip into orbit. She is over 150 years old, after all. Shall I show you to her? Yes, please. John led us toward an official-looking building standing a short distance away from the landing pad.
Once inside, we were led to a meeting room. It was ornate and luxurious, primarily used for important official state business. The doors opened, and we saw her for the first time. She was ancient, pushing the limits of what human life extension technology was capable of. Her wizened form sat in a black chair hovering just off the ground, probably to aid her mobility. She was half buried in blankets with a halo of white hair, but her eyes were bright. They scanned us as we stepped into the room. Hello, Captain. I I'm told you have a message for me. I must say, I'm honored to receive such esteemed visitors, although I have no idea what this is all about. Tuck approached her slowly, methodically, as he had approached the broken spaceship halfway across the galaxy. He put his satchel down on the table and looked directly at her. Then he smiled, only slightly. We have several messages for you, in fact, Miss Emma. The captain placed a data chip on the table between them. Senior Attaché Carlson stepped forward with a data pad and placed the chip into a slot on its side, then placed it on the table before Emma. Hello, my little star child. It's Mom and Dad. How have you been? Keeping your room clean like you promised, I hope? Watching Emma's face as she listened to the final words of her parents. I was struck by the emotion I saw there. Too often the facial expressions of other species were incomprehensible to me. But in Emma's eyes, I saw a lifetime of sadness and pain, tempered by an obvious love for the parents that she had not seen since she was a little girl and had never forgotten. When Emma had finished, she dried her eyes with a handkerchief. Thank you for bringing this to me. There is no way I can repay you for the closure this gives me. It is we who cannot repay you, Miss Emma. Your mother, your father, they saved our world. Everything we are now, everything we will become, is because of them. All the good we do from here, we do in their name. We are preparing your mother's body for transport back to Earth, as well as all the belongings we've been able to collect from the Star Child. If you wish, we can return the ship itself back to you as well, but that will take some time. We are also searching for your father's body and the Terran government has offered to assist. Thank you, Captain. I don't want the Star Child back. Perhaps we should leave it where it is. I retrieved Tuck's satchel from the table and handed it to him. He carefully extracted the box inside and offered it to Emma. The original packaging crumbled as soon as it was disturbed, but the contents were unharmed by the passing of time. Emma opened the lid of the box and lifted out the object inside. It was a star, made of a beautiful, translucent crystal that slowly boiled with a thousand colors 
They ran and flowed around each other, never mixing. The star became energized by the light falling upon it and the colors quickened. At its center was the form of a baby, curled into the fetal position. Emma smiled. In her face, we could see the similarities. The infant in the star had been modeled after her, custom made by order of her parents on some far-off exotic world. She was their real star child. I am sorry for the invasion of privacy, but I have watched your mother's final message many times. I hope that you do not hate her for the choice she made. I don't hate her. I could never hate her. I loved her. She was my mother. And he was my father. They were my entire world. They saved our people. Without them, we would have no world. They are our mother and father, too. was Hard Choices by Michael Carabot, performed by Athena Karkanis, Trevor Etienne, Erin Ebers, Jarrett Scracy, Marilyn Facey, and Robert Fleet. This episode was directed by Alex Kemp and produced by Toby Lawless at Wolf at the Door Studios. Dust is produced by Stephen Michael and associate produced by Sarah Newton at Gunpowder and Sky. As our world reels from climate chaos, there is one beacon of hope. Pura, a sanctuary amidst the devastation, safeguarding its inhabitants from the relentless onslaught of environmental disasters. Meet Demetria Lopez, the face of Pura's pristine image. But beneath the facade lies a chilling truth. When Demetria uncovers a secret that could shatter everything Pura stands for, she faces a choice. Loyalty or truth? Preservation or revelation? From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death comes an electrifying new series, The Last City, starring the talents of Rhea Seahorn, Jenny Tirado, and Maury Sterling, prepare for a gripping tale of intrigue and moral reckoning. Subscribe to The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you listen to podcasts. And for an exclusive experience, join Wondery Plus to binge all episodes early and ad-free. The future of Pura awaits. 